The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, quit nursing your bottle rocket burns and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 357 with guest Nathan Pocock, recorded live Tuesday, June 24, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's happier than a dentist at a Hatfield-McCoy family reunion, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here. Richard Campbell will be joining us in just a few minutes, but I'm going to do the intro solo today. And uh, it's a nice day in New London, Connecticut. The weather's fine, of course. It's barbecue season, 4th of July. All that stuff is happening here in America. Independence Day and all that. Well, before I get into Better Know Framework, which I will do today, I'm going to read an email that we got from uh, Kyle Kalin. And I'm sorry, Kyle, if I mangled your last name, but he says, Hey, Carl and Richard. I just want to take a minute and let you guys know that I'm one of the 14 of your listeners that took Greg Brill and Infusion up on their New York tour offer. I've been an Infusionite for almost a year now, and what an amazing year it has been. I've worked on development projects for investment banks, law firms, and a large pharmaceutical company. In addition to improving my .NET skills, I've learned SharePoint, WPF, and Surface. So you can see from a career standpoint, the benefit has been huge, but the real benefit is living in New York City. I couldn't even come close to describing everything that I've done in New York. There are so many cool things to do, places to see, and amazing restaurants in less than 20 minutes from my apartment door. Recently, my girlfriend and I spent July 4th at Yankee Stadium watching the Yankees-Red Sox game. So for those listeners who are on the fence about whether or not they should do the New York tour, I would tell them, do it, make the jump, it'll be worth it. Keep putting out the great shows. I love listening to them on on the subway on the way to work. Kyle, Kyle, you're getting a mug. That was awesome. It, it's really great to hear that uh, that it's a good thing all around. It's certainly uh, certainly a lot of fun. And they are good friends of ours. If you want to read about the New York tour that Kyle is talking about, you can get the details at shrinkster.com slash kh6. Um, of course, there are also Infusion is also hiring talented developers for their Dubai office. Yeah, that's right. The Middle East, Dubai, sort of the, the Paris of the 2000s. You might want to call it that. And also they have a need for people to come in and learn Surface, which Kyle was also referring to. Microsoft Surface, that awesome tabletop computer that you use your fingers to operate with. Contact me if you're interested in details. Also, shrinks.com slash kh6. Okay, now let's get on to Better Know Framework. So today's class is, uh, I'm going to start getting into the generics a little bit, into the uh, system collections generic namespace. And the thing that caught my eye today was the sorted list generic class, which represents a collection of key value pairs 
that are sorted by a key based on the associated iComparer of T implementation. So uh, it basically takes a key and a value, right, when you create it. So some of the remarks. The sorted list generic class is a binary search tree. Uh, it's similar to the sorted dictionary generic class. The two classes have similar object models. Uh, where the two classes differ is in memory use and speed of insertion and removal. And it goes on to say the sorted list uses less memory than the sorted dictionary. The sorted dictionary has faster insertion and removal operations for unsorted data. And if the list is populated all at once from the sorted data, sorted list is faster than sorted dictionary. goes on to say another difference between the sorted dictionary and sorted list is that sorted list supports efficient index retrieval of keys and values through the collections returned by the keys and values properties. It's not necessary to regenerate the lists when the properties are accessed because the lists are just wrappers for the internal arrays of keys and values. Hey, we're going to be at DevLink, which is a conference in Tennessee, August 22nd and 23rd. You can read about it at www.devlink.net, D-E-V-L-I-N-K. Just wanted to give them a shout out. And with that, Richard, let's introduce Nathan Pocock. He's chief architect and a software developer at Software Toolbox. Immersed in OPC, which we'll define in just a minute, since mid-2001, and .NET in late 2001. Uh, he's designed and written many custom and commercial OPC applications and development toolkits. He built the first commercial .NET OPC client application in early 2002, and designed and co-wrote the first OPC client to pass the new OPC Independent Test Lab Certification Testing in April 2008. He's an advocate of leveraging .NET technologies for building custom OPC software, be they WinForms, WebForms, services, or console applications. Welcome to the show, Nathan Pocock. Thank you. So the obvious question, what the heck is OPC? <laughs> 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 it's a it's a good question. It's one that unfortunately has a pretty lengthy answer to it, but I'll try and uh, get it distilled down to the absolute minimum. Uh, basically, if you can think of any industrial application in any setting, whether it's a company that, that makes roofing tiles for your house, uh, brews beer, uh, anything that's automated that machines are doing in a build process, can be controlled by your desktop or laptop, the same kind that we've got in our bedrooms and in our bags. And the beauty of it is a lot of it nowadays can be done extremely easily, even if you're not a programmer. But the history is quite opposite to that. And really what, what happened was uh, several decades ago when all these PLCs uh, were being put into these uh, industrial PLC? facilities... Acronym, Programmable please. logic controllers. Ah, that's Basically, an old term. It's a computer with no keyboard, mouse, or monitor. Right. It just sits there doing the same thing over and over again. Well, basically, there's a whole slew of these out there, different makes and models, all of them having their own unique proprietary protocols. And anybody who wanted to communicate to them basically had to write their own communications protocols. And then, being a DOS based era, Development wasn't quite so easy, so you had to be a, an assembly or a C programmer and a pretty skilled one at that. Well, a number of commercial applications came out, uh, allowing people to, to create applications uh, in a visual uh, way, so they could actually just use touch panels or a mouse, etc., etc. But the problem was that these different companies had their own armies of developers still programming their own protocols to talk to these PLCs. And so you'd have vendor A with their suite of protocols talking to PLC A and vendor B with their own suite of protocols talking to the same type of device. Don't most of these PLCs have socket interfaces these days? A lot of them do now, but that's not always been the case. No. Uh, it's I, I did a been... ton of this sort of programming, all but all serial back mm -hmm. in, the, in the 80s. Yeah. Yep. I That's did a bunch it. of serial communications, exactly. And so uh, what they basically figured out was that the amount of PLCs coming out was was far in excess of what their development teams could keep up with. 
and they've got customers hitting them with, I need connectivity to this, and I need connectivity to that. So basically, a bunch of people, a bunch of companies came together to figure out, we need some kind of a standard where we can basically uh, abstract the, the hardware away from our software. And so we can turn basically uh, all of these PLCs into some form of a common interface that's completely agnostic to the, the make and model and the underlying transport to communicate to a PLC. Hmm. And that was where OPC stepped in to fill that void, to provide that, that common interface to uh, talk into any type of PLC. And did we, and did we say what it stands for? OPC is something that has changed over the years. It started out life being Olay for process control, Olay being uh, object link and embedding. Right. All right. Well, you know, OPC Which should was, give you chills, hmm, you know. It should. Because who likes Olay now? Should strike really? fear in the heart of all developers. Oh yeah, because exactly. <laughs> this this was, you know, decom for industrial processes. Like it was not wow. easy stuff. Wow. Right. Exactly. And so Basically, that's part of the reason why they had to rename it, because hmm. Olay, that's old hat. Who, who really talks about Olay nowadays? So the, the O basically changed in from Olay to open, and the P now changed to process, and C changed to connectivity, but then they figured, well, that doesn't quite sound right. So then they've recently opted for the word collaboration. So it's open hmm. process collaboration. And this is a protocol? Actually, uh no, not really. It's more of a, an interface. It's really a set of specifications. OPC is a client-server model. You basically have an OPC server, and that's really a protocol gateway. So on the, the uh, one side of it, you are talking to the PLC in its native uh, PLC protocol, whether sure. that be a Modbus standard or some other. Uh, proprietary protocol, but that's abstracted away from the other side of the fence, which is the OPC interface. I see. And so an OPC client talks to an OPC server using this OPC standard, and the server is responsible for translating these very generic requests into device-specific, protocol-specific requests to the PLC. I see. And that sounds like it could get kind of harried because a lot of these PLCs are do what they do because they're so unique, right? That is true, and for that reason, the OPC specs had to really take that into consideration. And, you know, the people that put together this, this standard in the first place have been working with a lot of PLCs for a very long time, and so they had the foresight and as well as the, the, his, you know, the experience to know what kind of pitfalls they could fall into if they didn't get this right. Yeah, I would imagine that'd be very tough. Well, I mean, for me, this this all comes down to that sort of analog digital layer, and and in my experience with dealing with this, like actually figuring out when you commanded a valve to close, was the valve fully closed? Right, because that changes over time. The the given set of pulses that closed a valve one time doesn't close it the next time because there was more pressure or the 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 uh, wheel was more worn. I mean, there's any number of factors. So the, it, it's really analog world's messy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's that's a whole uh, different discussion right there on uh, what is the best way to to control these kinds of. Uh, you know, openings and closings, and how do you get some kind of assurance that what you told it to do actually happened? Yeah, uh, and I'm uh, the one when I was doing this work. The one we kept quoting was the Three Mile Island incident, where the pro what happened with Three Mile Island was that the pressure vessel had a valve to relieve pressure at the top, and there was a button you pushed in the control room that would pop that valve open, and if you pushed it again, it would close. But they were never sure which state it was in. Oh yeah. So they asked the, the management, can you put a light on this to let us know when the valve is open or closed? And said, okay. And they wired the light to the switch. <laughs> so when you pushed it, the light turned on. When you pushed it again, the light turned off. Didn't matter what the valve did. Right. And so the light was off, but the valve was open. Yeah, not good. I had a Philips remote control that did that too. And it got out of sync. It was supposedly like a universal remote control. And you, you it learned all of the devices in your media setup, like your TV and your cable box and all that. And it had one switch, and it was like, turn everything on. But if the TV was already on, guess what? Turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> so all your other boxes come on, your TV turns off. It's great. So when I'm thinking about brewing beer, I'm going to pull the Canadian line there. 
I mean, you really need to know not just what you commanded, but what it did. Right. You need feedback. You need a return value from that function. Absolutely. And, and there's a number of interfaces in the OPC specifications. OPC ultimately is a set of specifications. That is all. And so really the, the whole point of vendors using these specifications is to use them in a way that makes sense. And so uh, what these interfaces do is give people different abilities to to, to view data. So there's actually a number of ways in which you can view the current state of, uh, say, a valve or a pressure reading or a temperature reading. And so an OPC client can say, hey, server, you know, go give me, go find out the value of, of this particular register here and give me that value back. And you can do that synchronously or asynchronously because everybody likes asynchronous nowadays. And that's great for doing a one-time read, but there's also another method called a subscription, which is basically where you say, hey, OPC server, I want you to continuously poll this register, and each time you read back the value, tell me if the value changes. So in other words, just note, send me some kind of an event uh, trap to tell me that this particular item has changed its value. I'm wondering why there's uh, a yet another sort of protocol language on the on the client side. Why not web services? Or do you use web services for that matter? I didn't even know. It's a good question. Web services have been around what, for a few years now, but it, it was before the time when OPC was developed. But I see. one major um, caveat with web services is that they're not really intended for you know, a lot of data data throughput. And the problem with the industrial segment is that, you know, yeah. we're used to seeing data changes in terms of milliseconds. Right. So we're, You're right. we're having to poll these devices extremely rapidly. I mean, it's not uncommon to poll, you know, a PLC and get several thousands of uh, data points back. So it's probably you know, a really stripped-down binary sockets-based protocol then. Exactly, exactly that. But there's also got to be a real serious real-time element to this because, you know, if you're filling a, a, a drum up or a, a, a tank up with water, you need to respond very quickly to it's now at the height you want it to shut it off. Exactly. And you, you can't afford a garbage collection when that's going on. That mm. is true. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's a lot of optimization that OPC servers have had to implement over the years and you know, we, there's optimization at the uh, typically at the protocol levels to get the kind of data throughput from a device that you need because each protocol has its unique you know ways of uh, acquiring data rapidly. But at the same time, you know, if like a, a water tower is filling, or if you know somebody's life or limb is in danger when they're working on a press and they hit a panic button, a, a cl an OPC client saying, "Hey, server, write this value to a shut off register," for example that server has to take care of that immediately. And so that's part of the optimization that, that, that's in play. And Richard brought up a good ex specific point there, which is garbage collection. Is this really a, an OPC server? Is it a managed code thing, or is it a is it a native code uh, Good server? question. Yeah, unfortunately, here's another dirty word coming out, COM-DCOM. Yeah. OPC is, a, is really a set of specifications that, are intended to work on top of DCOM, COM-DCOM. So everything is COM-DCOM based. Okay. So whenever you're developing an application in, in .NET, obviously you do have to go through the interoperability layer. But uh, generally speaking, though, the emphasis on what's controlling these processes really shouldn't be in so much of the application uh, depending on what kind of process is involved, sure. it should be maybe moved into the, the PLC instead. Right, which is unmanaged, it sounds. Well, the PLC calm, itself calm. is actually, you know, a dedicated piece of equipment oh, oh, right. yeah, I specifically you... for that kind of thing. The PLC, yes. I, th we're right. we're talking about, I thought you were talking about the uh, OPC server. Yeah. But generally speaking, though, an OPC client, depending on what it's doing, it should retain all of the objects that it's using within that OPC uh, session. So really there shouldn't be any garbage collection that's occurring. Right. In other words, anything. it's a stateful, it's a stateful server. Exactly. You, you, main, you maintain a connection to it the whole time you're controlling and talking to that device. That's the intention. Yes. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense and totally different from 
you know, web programming. Right. Totally you know, different. That's, that's the thing is that a lot of the typical .NET documents and articles you see and hear about are for those typical IT scenarios where it's, you know, web-based, database-driven applications, and that's completely not what this industrial sector is doing. It is more machine-oriented data, right. and so a lot of the time the speeds that are needed just, you know, you have to go about it differently. You know, the 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 reason we didn't like DCOM was not that it didn't work, but hmm. that it was so opaque. And hard to configure. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to understand what's going on. It's hard to look at the data and, and see it and so forth. So, I mean, I'm really hoping that the state of the arts moved along a bit, that we're not still dealing with this binary stream that's so difficult to manage and incredibly challenging to diagnose problems with. That is true. It is a bit of a black box, and like you say, it can be difficult to get working. But once it's working, it's pretty good. But there is one infamous flaw with DCOM that that OPC users picked up on very quickly. And let's suppose that an OPC client is trying to connect and do something with an OPC server. It could be on the same machine, could be on a different machine on the network. But if something happens and that, that server is unavailable... Uh, did you guys know that in DCOM there is a hard-coded, non-negotiable six-minute timeout period? Oh, yuck. Oh, no. No way. <laughs> non-negotiable, hard-coded. So, ah. yeah, I mean, that that adds a lot of wrenches into the works. But uh, the ah. thing is, is that there's other problems, too. You know, DCOM was... Uh, the, re- the reason for that six-minute timeout is because Microsoft assumes, hey, we're going to this global Internet, you know, it, it, machines could be anywhere in the world, so it may take time to establish a connection, you know, and so there's some there's some logic behind that thought, but unfortunately, the very ports that DCOM uses are the same ones that a lot of other critical Windows processes use, and so you cannot go opening those ports that easily right. to get DCOM applications working across the Internet as, as they once advertised you could. Because otherwise, you could expose your network infrastructure in ways that would not be good. Wow, what a challenge. So is there, I obviously, I guess then, the obvious thing to do is to avoid that at all costs and have sort of uh, a health monitor going all the time, sort of like little ping messages. I'm here, I'm okay. Exactly. If you don't get one of those, you don't, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of the the, the decent applications that exist out there, they they have to be multi-threaded and they have to, send little ping requests like that every few seconds or so, right. such that if one thread is in the midst of a decom timeout, you can just kill that thread and, and maybe move on. Right. But one of the things that you mentioned earlier is that, you know, technology does evolve, and OPC is evolving with it. And so the, the standards that we've been using for these last few years that have been based on COM, decom, are actually in the midst of transitioning to a new standard called OPC UA, or Unified Architecture, uh, which is a service-oriented architecture and is not tied to COM, DCOM. It offers a whole new set of uh, protocols and, and um, interfaces that abstract OPC even further. A service-oriented so, uh, OPC architecture. That is really hard to get my mind around because, as I said before, the, the OPC is a stateful server mm-hmm. and the whole nature of SOA is disconnected and stateless. That is true. And uh, unfortunately, the thing is with uh, a lot of the the service technology out there is that they've had to find ways of making them more stateful. And uh, one of the ways in which these new services are going to work is that they they will actually have to retain state. Uh, And the reason for that being is because there's a lot of other functionality that's required nowadays in, in any given application, and the biggest requirement is one of security. And problem when you in, when you add security into the mix, you typically add a lot of overhead. Latency. Uh, exactly. And so you have to really seriously start looking into maintaining the state so you can reduce some of that overhead as your applications scale up. Yeah, so you, I mean, you're basically talking now about managed, carrying in your state chunk some kind of security token that you've already negotiated for, so you don't have to keep redoing that negotiation. Exactly right. 
But that, I mean, yeah, not, immediately my head rings with Sarbanes-Oxley. Like those kinds of, I need to protect this data because it's sensitive things are, are just brutal on performance. You're such an thing. IT guy, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you think about, you know, the post-9-11 era that we're in and, uh, you know, and there was all the talk on TVs that we're all potentially going to get poisoned to death where they're going to poison the, uh, you know, the open lakes and reservoirs and the like. And so, as you can imagine, the government started putting a lot more restrictions on these kind of utilities to, to put better security in place, not just literally, but electronically as well. And, and part of that security is making sure that if I send a signal to a water tower to stop filling or to, to shut off, that somebody else cannot eavesdrop, maybe intercept and modify that data and, and send it on against my will. Right. So that's part of why all these new standards are having to be put in place to, to make everything much safer and more reliable. Safety is a big concern, obviously, in the industrial world. Is there exactly. anything built into the protocol to, I don't know, automatic shutoff or any of that kind of stuff, or is that really up to the application developer to do? That's a good question, and uh, it, it is always up to the application developer. Security back when OPC was first conceived in the you know the early 90s, was really one that wasn't all that big of a deal back then. And so the security was simply, well, calm, decom, that's what we're going to use to yeah. let software talk to each other. And, oh, it's got security built in? Well, we're going to leverage and benefit on that. So that's right. great. And it worked for a long time. But unfortunately, there's a lot of problems associated with it. So one of the things that, that was evident was that com decom security, yeah, it, it lacks in many areas. I mean, if somebody can tap into a, a secure line, there's no way you could possibly know that the data that you sent is actually what got received. And so there's multiple levels now in this newer OPC UA standard to, to ensure that data that gets received is what was sent and mm. it was sent from a trusted party. Nice. I'm just still trying to believe that .NET can be real-time enough for the sort of industrial processes we're talking about here. Or it, does it leave, somehow leave itself out of the loop? Are you just giving instructions to PLCs and they're doing the reacting? That's the best-case scenario. It really does depend on the type of process that, that's being monitored and controlled. Ultimately, you want the PLCs, the equipment themselves, to be as automated as possible. The most use of software applications is really from a visualization standpoint. Let me see what's going on. Right. You know, for things that require high-speed turnaround, you know, I detect this change, I need to respond with the following, that's still best left in the PLC as well. But for smaller-scale applications, a .NET application can actually do quite well. So in our scenario where we're filling the tank, you're basically sending instructions to the to the PLC saying, okay, open this valve, then monitor this other sensor, and when it reads this, close that valve. Exactly that. And then you, and then you step away, the PLC knows what to do now. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's something you've got to remember, is that the PLCs are really intelligent things, too, and that they have these routines programmed into them already. You're just saying, you know, do this job, do that job, do this job. Exactly right. But I think it's an interesting challenge here is that is you've, you've trying, the whole goal was really to make it easier to manage those PLCs. Right. And that's the thing is that when you, if you think from the vendor's perspective, you've got people out here developing software. A lot of the time they want to develop software at once because the kind of software that they're building does a specific type of job, whether it's filling water towers or whatever. And so they don't really want to have to get into the business of creating a different application for each different PLC that's out there. What they want to do is develop it one time and have the ability to interchange the PLCs and the protocol and the underlying transport, whether it's serial or Ethernet. They should all be change, changes that are outside the scope of the .NET application. Right. And that's what OPC allows. That's what it accomplishes. Well, Nathan, let's talk a little bit about what you've done with .NET and OPC. Sure. Uh, it's really a quite a lengthy list. The The truth of the matter is that really .NET is, is a great blank slate. You can do absolutely anything you like with it. 
whether it's creating Windows Forms applications, Web Forms applications, it you really can do a lot. And so most of the applications that I've done and what other people typically do are the visualization uh, applications. In other words, when you when you go into a facility, a lot of the times there'll be a color monitor there with some nice graphics on it that represent machinery that they're controlling or monitoring. And so, for example, it, it is a water tower. As it's filling up, you might see an icon uh, on a screen and some pipes with flowing water and maybe a nice scale to show you what percentage of the tank is full. Yeah. yeah. And so, basically, you can animate these screens in, in pretty much a real time. And the overhead involved in that is actually pretty minimal. Uh, I think you'll find pretty much uh, even a badly coded .NET application can uh, cope with that pretty easily. Sounds like a but great job for WPF. Right, exactly. And that's that's a whole other conversation right yeah. there. Um, so that's the most common types of application. Then you do have the process control where you are saying, hey, server, notify me when such and such register changes. And when it does, I've got logic in my application. Maybe I'm taking the value, doing some multiplication, some subtraction, whatever, and then writing that value out to these other registers over here. And, and you've so written an assembly interface? I'm sorry? You've written a component, an assembly interface that you add to your applications to, to do that? No, actually, uh, there's not really any need to go that deep. Uh, really, for a .NET application, uh, you've got two types of OPC application you can build. You've got the client, which is typically what most people are, are creating, which is for your visualization and, and your control. And then you've got an OPC server, which is merely the, the way of communicating to some kind of device. And so uh, we've, I've actually built both types of application. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. So and so the communication part is where we'd be pushing instructions to the PLC of what you wanted to do next, and then the other one side is really instrumentation, looking at what's going on. But That's what? True. How does the client access the OPC server? Is what I'm getting at. There's a uh, basically the the OPC interface is 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 com decom. That's the there's interfaces that are defined in the OPC server. The OPC client knows what they are. They're well defined, okay. and it uses com calls to make those, so those connections and calls. So you're adding a reference to a com object and you get the com callable wrapper and, and you, you have to treat it just like any other com object. Exactly. And the thing is with the OPC specs, they are uh, they're, they're pretty easy to understand from a high-level perspective. But once you start getting deep down and dirty with it, the amount of code that you have to write can actually get pretty substantial. And there's a lot of error checking that, that you have to do as part of the the calls that you make, you get back error return codes for pretty much everything, the transaction as a whole, plus each individual element within that transaction. And so for each line of code you write, there's probably another two or three lines per line of error checking. And so uh, for people that are developing pure OPC clients using these interfaces, it can be a pretty tedious task. But thankfully, the um, the commercial 
side of OPC has really taken off, and so a lot of vendors have built uh, nice developed toolkits that really abstract a lot of those heavy details away from the end user. Uh, one of the components I developed was a, uh, a completely codeless development tool. Uh, basically, you know the extender providers in, in Visual Studio, the help provider, yeah. the tooltip? I built an extender provider nice. that exposes OPC capabilities to any .NET component on a form. Sweet. And so it's just drag, drop, point, click. There you go. You've just bound data uh, within an OPC server to WinForm controls, and it can be bi-directional. You just added your own properties right there. Boom. Exactly. Well, and, you know, this is what Microsoft technology is good at. Let's uh, create a, an ecosystem of vendors that can provide us with controls. So now I'm sort of working in a Visio-like world, just dragging, dropping things on, connecting them together. It, exactly that. Yep. Yeah, the Visual Studio Designer. That's right. So what sort of designs are we talking about here? What would it look like? Well, it could look like absolutely anything you like, really. Don't you I hate mean, that blank slate problem? It's like, okay, <laughs> where do we start? You be the yeah, creative well, guy. There's, uh, the thing is with industrial software, there's a lot of tools out there, a lot of graphical components, for example, where you can drag and drop, say, like um, a speed gauge on, on your um, on your form. So you, you can have a miles per hour, kilometers per hour, this kind of thing. And so you've got something that looks real nice, but how do you get the data to, to animate that? Well, that's right. where you could use something like the extender providers. And there's a lot of other industrial symbols too, you know, stuff like a valve. There's a picture of a valve and you can make it change color or blink when it's in a different state. And so a lot of the screens that people create, they, they make them to look like a real-world dashboard or they make them look like a plant schematic, right? Or the or the process diagram of a uh, of like a refinery. Exactly. Know, here's a here's a cooker here and a breakdown stack here, and piping goes this way, and yeah, just that whole flow of where everything's going. Exactly. There's a valve here. You click it, and you can see the pipes fill or empty. Yep, exactly that. Yeah. Again, WPF would be your friend here. I mean, I can imagine some really sweet looking real-time monitoring kind of things. Yeah, I know of uh, some vendors that are uh, already very deeply involved in the, in the development of uh, WPF um, visualization mm. tools, complete HMI suite. HMI is a human-machine interface. It's really where uh, this kind of application development really started because Visual Studio, really, the tools that we've gotten used to in there, they've not been around that long. And so, you know, the likes of us, we know how well we're spoiled with these tools, but a lot of new guys coming aboard, just they'll think of it as the norm and have no idea what we had to put up with. Interesting question. Do you ever use MIDI, uh, MIDI devices to, to get data in, you know, sliders and real tactile kind of things, knobs and switches? Those, those are the exact kinds of, of controls that, uh, that you'll find in most visualization screens. Wow. But I mean, as far as real tactile controls, real consoles, so that you can remotely control some sort of input or output or, or whatever with your hands. Oh, you mean literally? Yeah, like the, having the, the slider. Right, or a knob. something physical right there. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you can interface, if you can actually get information to and from that device... As a matter of fact, I can. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a component to use musical instrument digital interface to mm -hmm. to use any kind of MIDI faders or pedal foot pedals or or any kind of thing like that to, well, to give you data that, right in your .NET app. That's that's the MIDI I thought you were talking about. I've not yeah. come across anybody using that in quite a long time. But yeah. uh, the the thing is with that particular. Um, protocol. I don't think I know of any vendors that have created an OPC server for it, but I can tell you one thing. There are plenty of toolkits out there where you could very quickly and easily create your own uh, OPC to MIDI converter. Nice. Of course, the challenge here is that we're talking about an industrial environment. Right. So, you know, I, I, you mentioned touchscreens before. I got to think they're sort of the most robust thing you can have because there's no physical moving parts. It's just contact. That is true, and of course, a lot of the industrial environments are not exactly friendly to your right. electronics, whether there's a lot of noise from heavy electrical, a lot of dust and other things, and plus you've got heavy-handed 
engineers with yeah, yeah. huge fingers that are not scared to put their <laughs> fingers through something. <laughs> not keyboard-friendly hands. Well, um, exactly. I can imagine the multi-input cursor would be really handy here as well. You know, sort of that whole Microsoft... Uh, What's the table that they have there? Surface. The surface. Yeah, the whole... And I can't imagine you guys are even there yet. I mean, it actually, seems like WPF is even pretty new. But you could see next-generation stuff where it's just a big multi-touch surface and you can do what you want. Kind of like what the Apple iPhone does. Yeah, but yeah. bigger. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, one of the things that you you mentioned that you're absolutely right on is that the industrial automation section is actually incredibly slow at adopting technology and, and, and you're right WPF is still quite new as are many other technologies that have been around for a very long time we, we have slow adopters because well you're dealing with equipment that could literally be harmful to, to life and so they don't want to take risks with being early adopters they need to sit back watch make sure all the kinks are worked out before they invest in something that nobody likes bugs in an oil refinery yeah. Exactly. That would exactly. be bad. Yeah. Who knows what it could do to the price of a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and that whole the programmer going, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can fix that. Just give me a sec. You put out the fire. I'll fix the code. Exactly. Or yeah, go stitch that guy's arm back on. Oh, <laughs> oh man. That's just, I mean, it's an interesting point that there's huge consequences. We, it's fun to have the diagram on the screen and push the buttons and so forth. When you realize those are real valves and real pipes and real toxic chemicals flowing around based on your presses, you, you have to be careful. Yeah, secu- exactly. Security has got to be a huge issue. It, it, exactly. That's exactly it. Security is a huge issue, and it's going to get more important as time goes on. But what about just the basic debugging of how do you open and close this valve? How do you determine the valve is jammed? Like, do you need to dig into that, or is that a well-defined problem now? Unfortunately, it's not been a well-defined problem. One of the things that we do need to to talk about at some point is this new OPC UA standard. Uh, But to answer your question, the difficulty with any multi-layered system is that you've got all these different abstracted layers you don't necessarily know which layer a problem occurs in. And so, right. you know, the problem with a PLC is that it has no screen, it has no keyboard or anything. It's it's a box with wires going in and out of it. And so how do you know if there's a problem intern, you know, internally within it? Right. It all, and all you, I guess the usual diagnostic process with a PLC is, is it responding to you? Exactly. Do yeah. other things work? And the thing is with uh, PLCs is that the type of engineers that are working on the programs within them have a pretty, you know, rigament set of uh, testing requirements before they even put it into production. So generally speaking, the PLC is the most reliable part of any system most of the time. Right. So didn't people used to program PLCs directly, like with the Rockwell controls and Visual Basic and things like that? Wasn't there? Wasn't there a I mean, this we've been doing this for a long time. That's true. Yeah, the the way that PLCs are programmed, they don't necessarily get programmed in any kind of language that we're used to, like .NET or even assembly. They're programmed using ladder logic, which it, it sounds a bit alien, but the the logic diagrams that we all drew back in college and have never used since are really the kinds of diagrams that you design to run your program in within a PLC. So if you can imagine a a literal ladder, and then each rung of that ladder contains various and or not gates, etc., to control program flow, that the kind of tool that you're, you're, you're using is visualizing that and allowing you to drag these little logic gates onto these rungs to control that, that program flow. And so it's a very different methodology and a very different mentality that's needed for that kind of development work. Mm. But I mean, ladder diagrams, they, they even predate digital electronics. That We did that with relay circuits, just <laughs> all mechanical. Right. I, I remember building these boards with this really is experimentation. And, you know, you'd fire off the sequence and you'd hear the relays latch. And then you'd tap each relay to make sure it actually clicked to the right state. Mm-hmm. Like, it's yeah. just so... It's so unreliable. <laughs> it just terrifies me, you know, that, that these things are cranky. 
Yeah, mm. the good news is they've gotten a lot better in that time, but the bad news is they really haven't come very far in terms of how you develop with them. And some some of the newer models do allow a C program to be written and downloaded to them, but you're not talking any higher level languages than that, though. Well, and, and you described it appropriately when you called them registers. You know, that's straight up old machine code talk that, you know, the way that we actually communicate to this... Uh, uh, to this device is uh, by setting a value to it. That's right. And somewhere else you check to see what the state of that register or that value is. So you developed this interface, you're, and you said you were the first one to really do the OPC with .NET? Right. In 2002? Mm-hmm. And did you create a, a server as well? Uh, servers came later on. In fact, uh, the first .NET application using OPC cheated a little bit, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, one of the things that OPC has had for quite a while is an abundance of uh, wrapper tools, as well as the commercial segment building ActiveX controls to, again, um, hide and abstract all the, the heavy details of OPC into some small, very easy-to-use um, function calls. And so, basically, uh, the first thing to do was to just leverage the ability to, to call ActiveX components within a .NET application to make that that work. That was a quick and easy approach. And tell me about this organization that you have a link to, the OPC Foundation? The OPC Foundation is a foundation that was constructed really to to, to answer the problem of all these different companies having to have their own development crews building protocols to the same equipment, they, they really came up with this standard. Okay. And it's really a volunteer association. Um, there, there's only three employees, that, and that's pretty new. Uh, there never used to be any employees. There's a board of directors uh, and different uh, committees that have been formed, and basically the whole idea of the foundation is to to really be a single point that defines specifications and a standard way of working for the industrial automation. And so uh, they've been around since, I think, 95. Uh, To be a member of the OPC Foundation, it is a a membership that you have to, to pay for annually, but once you're a member, you uh, you basically part of uh, of the club where you're welcome to uh, to get out there and make noise about OPC and use a variety of the tools that they make available to to members. And some of these tools uh, do involve uh, toolkits, so new people can come along and develop their own OPC servers and OPC clients, uh, as well as being involved in some of the newer endeavors like the OPC UA specification. Because one thing people don't realize about OPC is that there's more than just one set of specifications. There's actually quite a lot of different specifications for different things. And the problem is that none of them are built with the others in mind. And so, as you can imagine, you've got an OPC client wanting to talk to an OPC server. What the problem is, this client was designed for just simple data access, and this other server was designed for exposing historical data, not delivering real-time data. And so they're incompatible. And so the OPC Foundations had to learn from these kinds of of, uh, mistakes of going down different paths, of solving different problems with different specifications, and they've gone basically to a whole new standard called unified architecture. It sounds like the standard battle we have anywhere in the computer industry with standards where... As much as we have a standard, every vendor does his own twist to some degree, and ultimately it serves the, the the vendor in the sense that they want the customer to buy all their products and their products interop fine, that's, and then interop it with other people's products sometimes works or right. sort of works. That's right, and that that's always been a problem too with uh, with any standard, like you say. One of the ways that the Etsy Foundation addressed this after hearing these kinds of complaints was they 
set up an annual event called the Interoperability Workshop, where they invite all vendors or anybody who claims to be an OPC vendor to bring their software to uh, to this this workshop, and it literally is a big room with our network set up, and everybody brings their laptop with their software and source code, and you sit in your chair, and then you go around the room testing your software with the other guys. And when That's you find awesome. problems, your this developers go in and talking to other developers. You find and you fix them. And so that was how they they got over that that problem with. You know, this OPC vendor tweaking the specs to suit their needs better and then alienating the rest of the community, that no longer happens. Well, getting to back to this UA protocol, this sort of service-oriented, I'm just really curious as to how this works being, you know, combining. It seems like two big worlds colliding that are totally alien to each other. How does that work? Well, UA is a topic that we could easily spend a few hours on talking about on its own. Um, it, the key points to it, uh, first of all, it is service-oriented, uh, not in the same sense of a web service. Uh, it is a, more of a stateful service. Um, so that, that's the first thing. We can get into that more in a minute if you like. The other thing being is that I mentioned there are different OPC specifications or standards. There's one for getting real-time data. There's another one for uh, obtaining historical data from like a historian or database. There's another standard for dealing with alarms and events because that's a different kind of set of information that's needed. There's XML uh, services for, for getting real-time data. And there's other standards too for security. problem is, like I said, is that None of them were built with the, any of the others in mind. Oh. And so when you built software, you had to basically pick which one of these you were going to use and you develop for it once it's working great. If you need one of these other standards, we've got to go back and now start developing for that standard too. And, and you can so I imagine really, you can have some of the, these different protocols operating simultaneously on different threads, I imagine. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. you can. But the, the problem is, is that they don't work with each other. They don't talk together. Yeah. Exactly. And so UA is basically a, a set of base abstract objects that on their own uh, can do absolutely anything you like. But when you build a layer on top of them, you can actually make them look like these legacy OPC okay. um, standards that we've been using for a long time. And so that's one other uh, capability that they're going to allow you to do. I can take uh, an, an OPC application from the 1990s and there's going to be some calm to UA wrappers that will be invisibly used to that software, and it won't know that it's talking to a UA piece of software. It'll think it's talking to the same kind of software that it is. It won't know this. And some of the other benefits to UA will be the security uh, things that we spoke about earlier. But I get a sense that you're trying to get away from calm. Absolutely. Uh, one of the yeah, big differences. <laughs> but it, it, that's not a small thing to say. That's got to be very frightening to the vendors who have a huge investment in Calm. That is true. But at the same time, though, I mean, e even Microsoft's trying to get away from Calm. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> so Everybody's trying to get away from Calm. Exactly. But, you know, everybody's trying to get away from DDE, right? And they're going to pull the plug on it in Windows ME, right? Yeah, well, here it still is. So. <laughs> <laughs> DDE and oh. OLA, OLA. Exactly. Terrifying. Die, 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 die. Make it stop. <laughs> but, you know, one of the other things that they're trying to accomplish here is, is multiple things, but the ability for a PLC itself to, to completely do away with these protocols that they've been implementing in these things for the last few decades. What if the device itself could be an OPC server? Interesting. That's that's not been possible in the past because what's hmm. Calm, DCOM, uh, a Microsoft technology, and what do you need? Uh, Windows. Right. So they couldn't do that unless you had a great big you know, set of memory and, and uh, hmm. specific hardware in there. But now with this UA, there's different stacks. There's one communications uh, interface. There's one, one core, but there's an ANSI C stack, which is great for going inside embedded equipment, but there's also a native .NET API as well as a, a Java version coming out too. So basically any application that you want to build with UA, any of the, the 
three big development languages out there, you see, your .NET and your Java, there'll be a native stack that the OPC Foundation themselves have been creating. Previously, it's always been specifications, which have always been open to interpretation. And then you have interoperability issues. Well, those are going to disappear now into, here's a set of binaries that all applications that are OPC will use underneath everything. Wow. And that way, we can ensure that this, this stuff does as we say it does, and it's definitely interoperable because, yeah. well, it's our stuff. So that, that's just some of the things yeah. that, that UA is going to address. That's pretty cool. It's almost IL-like in that sense. It's sort of agnostic, doesn't matter what the hardware is, it's all going to run it. And, and I just was thinking in terms of PLCs have got to be advancing just like everything else has been. So they, they must have a lot more horsepower in them now than they used to, or or do they not grow like PCs do? They just, you know, do they have that same sort of Moore's Law thing happening to them? Well, they've definitely grown uh, a lot. They have definitely picked up in uh, performance and memory and, and uh, you know, performance in terms of the speed of the processors and the speed of the network cards that used to be 10 megabit, they went to 100, now we're seeing gigabit on them. Uh, all of the big boy PLCs, because, you know, different different uh, sizes of PLC from the low budget to the high end budget, uh, the higher end budgets basically have plug-in modules that just, just like a motherboard, you slot them in, give them even more capabilities. And so, uh, yeah, they've definitely grown. Uh, quite a lot in sophistication and, and some of the other ways that they've changed is in how you actually develop the application that runs within them. We've always thought of PLCs as these machine code-like uh, programs you were talking about earlier, where yes, you are talking about registers and simple data types. Everything is a, is a float, a boolean, or an integer or a string. There was not much else in it. Well, with some of these newer devices, now you can actually build objects. And I'm talking object from what we're used to talking about in .NET. You can build complex object types, and that's how you, you now reference data inside of these PLCs via objects. Have you done any PLC programming yourself, like with Windows Embedded or any sort of thing like that? PLC programming? Uh, not for about five or six years. I mean, people do it, though. Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. If you uh, wanted to get into this kind of programming, I mean, maybe you're maybe you're listening to this and you're like a developer doing your old CRUD applications at work, and the man's pushing down on you, and you're like, you know, I want to do something real time. I want to do something more fun. Where uh, where's a good place to go? That's a that's a pretty tough question because there's uh, there's a lot of information online, but unfortunately, when it comes to to development, you'll find it's your typical CRUD applications that are documented the most. <laughs> Uh, um, the 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 problem that there are that's where the majority of developers are is yeah. in that that world and not the industrial world. Yeah. The, the some good places are the OPC Foundation's website, opcfoundation.org, just to get a, an overview of OPC. Uh, the company that I work for, Software Toolbox, uh, they've got an address to softwaretoolbox.com, where you can learn about some of the Windows. Uh, the .NET development tools to get you started in OPC. And there's a lot of free tools available online for people to to at least simulate equipment that's out there in the real world. And uh, a lot of the devices that you know people are buying around their homes uh, have the potential to uh, to be interfaced with. Yeah, you know, this has all been a very industrial oriented, but more and more we're seeing this. Uh, smart home thing coming. I wonder how much of this is ultimately going to tie together. Well, at some point it's going to have to because uh, the energy needs of uh, basically civilization nowadays are, are increasing and the electrical supply doesn't seem to be. And so energy efficient buildings are going to become a norm. And one avenue with which we're trying to to tap into that is by promoting OPC as, as the, the technology to use because at the end of the day, OPC is seen as a tool for talking to PLCs, but that's not what its only application could be. You can use OPC to tell you when somebody's accessed a file on your network. Right. You can use OPC for absolutely any case whatsoever. It's just a way of accessing information and being notified when information has changed. That's great. Yeah, awesome. 
Well, um, uh, is there any anything else that we haven't covered in the last couple of minutes? You want any plugs or shout outs you want to give that we haven't done already? Uh, appreciate the offer, but no, I think I'll keep it there like that. <laughs> All right, Nathan. It's been great talking to you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.